Welcome to Cure Chronic, a place where we have deep conversations and hear amazing stories about chronic disease and more. Here's your host, Becky Gale. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm super excited to announce a guest all the way coming from Miami, where the sunshine is way hotter than where I am right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Margarita. Margarita, why don't you go ahead and tell us your story? So my name is Margarita and I am Colombian. I moved to the U.S. about 24 years ago. I came to Miami, where I currently live. Um, I'm 39 years old, just turned 39 during COVID time, which is was kind of a bummer, but I did get two cakes for my birthday. That was exciting. So I moved to the United States when I was 15. Uh, I was an athlete since I was six. I play volleyball and I, I play very well. So I moved to the United States in order to pursue, a, you know, to go to college and get a scholarship for my volleyball skills. And, and I did, I, I graduated high school in Miami. I, I got a scholarship with Miami Day, which is our, um, the local co- community college to play volleyball. And they had a great team. I wanted to study architecture. So I, I was a full-time athlete, full-time student. And I also had a part-time job at school. I was doing architecture during my second year. I'm sorry, during my first year of architecture, I started getting sick. I, I developed arthritis, arthritis, and I also had Raynaud's syndrome. And then during my second year, I had my first lupus flare, and I had to stop playing volleyball. And when I stopped playing volleyball, I also had to stop doing architecture because I, I couldn't take the workload. And um, then what I did was on, um, I graduated from the community college and I was able to get a scholarship and I got accepted into Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia. And there I finished interior design. and graduated in 2005 uh, because during my third, between my third and fourth year of college, I had a second lupus flare. I was able to graduate in 2005 as an interior designer. I worked in Miami for five years as an interior designer. And then I moved to New York in the middle of the economic crisis in 2010. I lived in New York for almost six years. I worked there as an interior designer as well. And then I got really sick of the snow and I decided to turn back around and I came to Miami almost five years ago. I moved back in 2010, I mean, in 2015, and I have been working in Miami as an interior designer ever since. I got a new job last year at the end. I, I work for a cruise line now, which is like probably a very difficult business going on right now due to the COVID, but I, I have been working as an interior designer um, in sunny Miami, and I love it. I love working for, for this company. Um, I am here to talk about my experience with my, with the condition. Um, regarding my conditions, I, I was diagnosed with, with arthritis and Raynaud's syndrome at first when I was 19. And then when I was 20, I started showing different symptoms and I had pericarditis and I had a mild pulmonary hypertension at, when I was 20. And then two years later, I had a flare with lupus, a second flare, and I developed 
uh, lupus retinopathy. I had um, hemorrhages in both of my retinas. I also developed vasculitis, and my heart fraction ejection was down to 30%. Back then, it was the most brutal, I think, treatment. I did chemotherapy, IV for six months, and they wanted to extend it for a year, but I couldn't do it because I wanted to go back to college and graduate. That was back in 2003, and that was the last player I have. My, my conditions have been pretty dormant. I, even the arthritis went, went away with chemotherapy. I haven't had any major arthritis pain since, and uh, even the lupus has been pretty dormant. The only, the only thing that has come out with the lupus has been um, due to my Raynaud syndrome. I have had uh, necrosis in three of my digits. Um, so that, that was probably the most painful thing I have gone through ever since that flare. Um, but really, that was like the most brutal thing that happened was that flare. I was, I was in a wheelchair for almost two months. The, the nerve pain was so bad, I, I couldn't even walk from my bed to the bathroom. I had to be carried on, on a wheelchair, wheeled in everywhere. I, I was fed by my sister and my mother. I was... I had to be bathed. I had to be. They have to. They have to do everything for me. I I couldn't do anything on my own. Even like sipping water, someone had to hold the cup for me and and do things like that. Um, but then ever since that flare, nothing. I had been super steady, super like okay. And then when I moved to New York, probably one year after I moved to New York, or two years later. Um, I started noticing a difference when I was going up and down on the subway stations. When I was walking for a long time, I would get shortness of breath. And I, and I remember like my, the first player that I had, I had some, some, some doctor mentioned pulmonary hypertension. So I went to the doctor, I, I went to the rheumatologist, I brought that up. And then they sent me to a pulmonologist and they, they read, they did some CAT scans and they, they said, that I had some pressure on the lungs, that I probably had developed the pulmonary hypertension. And I went through another pulmonologist who started treating me for it, but it wasn't being very successful. Then I decided to go to a third pulmonologist. And she said she couldn't treat me because she didn't know how to. I went to a fourth pulmonologist. They couldn't treat me either. Uh, and then that pulmonologist referred me to a cardiologist and that, that was the one person that was able to treat me for pulmonary hypertension and was able to actually diagnose me officially with pulmonary hypertension. And, and that's when I was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension in New York about seven years ago. And I had been treated for pulmonary hypertension. When I moved to New York, from New York to Miami, I had to switch doctors and find a new doctor and they put me in a new treatment. And I, my pressure is pretty good right now. I used to be in the high 50s and now my pressure is in the low 30s. So it's been a, a big, big improvement. Um, and I think that has been my biggest struggle since the last lupus flare, the, the hypertension. I also have scleroderma uh, or Crest syndrome 
which is a very similar condition like the lupus, but here it affects the skin. Um, so my, my skin is shrinking and it's losing flexibility. Um, sometimes it can be very painful. Um, but I have to say I'm extremely, extremely healthy within what's going on and with the, the biggest couple of things. I, I am going under different treatments for both the lupus and the hypertension. The hypertension treatment has been the most difficult treatment I have ever gone through in my life. It, it, it's even worse than chemotherapy itself. When it's, it's, a medi it's three different medications and two of the medications you have to titrate. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Becky, or not, have you ever heard that word, titration? So titration, it's when, when you start a medication, it starts, it, it, you need to get to a, a certain dose, but the doses are so harsh on the body, the body has to get adjusted to it. So what they do is they titrate it, they give it to you at minimum dose, and then you start building up as the body starts adapting to the medication. So two of those medications I had started, you have to titrate. So for one medication, you start at 200 micrograms, and I needed to get to 1,600 micrograms. And that took me about a year and a half to get there. And, and the second one, it took me about another year to get used to it. And, and the side effects were horrible. I, I was literally having chemotherapy side effects. I was nauseous at least three times a day. I had headaches. I had body ache. Um, I would throw up at least three times a day. I, I couldn't sleep because of the pain. No medications will take away the pain. So I, it, was, it was extremely, extremely uh, painful. The only thing that kept me sane, I think, was the relationship that I had with my doctor. The fact that I knew these medications were going to get me to a better place. And the, the fact that I wanted to be okay. I wanted to continue living my life the way I have been living my life for the past five years. So uh, I always try to stay on it. I was able to stay on it. I've been on it for almost three years now. And, and this is where I am today. I'm, I'm extremely, extremely healthy because of it. And, and that's who I am right now. I'm, I'm a happy, healthy person, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, that's good. Yes. I think it's really hard though, too, because when you're given a medication and you have to believe in the medication, even though it's making you so sick, it's just hard to get through that because, you know, I, I've experienced that as well with some of my Crohn's disease medications where you feel like, well, are the side effects for this medication really worth what I'm going through to be healthy again? Am I just going to feel this way for the rest of my life? Like there's, I know that there's a lot of doubt when it comes to those medications and, and then believing in the medications as well as the fact that you have to believe the fact that they're helping you as opposed to hurting you. I, I agree with you. When I had that second lupus flare, my doctor, my doctor wanted to put me in this medication and you know, it's cytoxin, it's called cytoxin. And, and she said, I want to put you on cytoxin. And my new, that flare was so difficult because I had six teams of doctors. I had, I had neurologists, I had dermatologist, I had pulmonologist, I had cardiologist, I had my internist, and I had my rheumatologist. So it was six people or six teams of doctors coming into my 
you know, into my, my, my room. And each one of them wanted to do something different with me. And it's really hard to get all six on teams of doctors on the same note and say, okay, we're going for this. You know, like at one time you, you have to demand to them like, okay, guys, get it together. This is my life. Let's make a decision. But anyway, when they told me I need, I didn't want to, they wanted to put me on cytoxin. I'm like, okay, I, I guess I'm, I will be open to it. Then I started doing some research and that's when I realized it was chemotherapy. And and then, of course, one thing is that you hear cytoxin, but then another thing is to hear it's chemotherapy. And you're always so afraid because you see cancer patients going through hell. And then you don't know if you should do it or not. I rejected it. When, when they first brought it up, I said, I'm not going to do chemo. Let's try something else. And we did. We tried something else. But three months later, I was getting worse. And I'm, 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 I'm a good one for drastic measures. I, I feel that I'd rather go for it aggressively and try to kill it and try to get it over with aggressively and then be able to move on with, with things than dragging it. So I'm like, you know what, let's, let's just go for chemo and, and let's see how that goes. But before I did that, I brought all of those concerns and all of those questions to my doctor. I mean, even my mom, even my family did the same thing. My family asked my doctor for a meeting. And I remember my mom and my sister, they met my doctor in the hospital cafeteria to discuss my treatment because they also had questions. They also had concerns. And I think building up the relationship with your doctor, um, besides doing research on your own, which I think it can, it can, it can harm you and it can hurt, it can, it can help you as well. Um, but I think bringing those, those concerns to your doctor and discussing it, having that relationship, it's, it's going to help things easy, make it, make them easier. And you'll be able to make better decisions with, with this treatment. When I heard about the side effects, I knew I have to go for it. Uh, I might not get the side effects. I might get them. I mean, I, I didn't know back then if I was going to get them or not. And I always consider myself a strong person within, you know, my limitations. So I just went for it because I, I really wanted to be okay. And then the symptoms started showing up. I'm like, I can pull through it. I, like I was pulling through it. I, I knew that at one point in my life, my body was going to get adjusted to this medication and I was able to gonna continue carrying on. And I remember one day, it was so brutal. It was probably 2, 2.30 in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I was in a lot of pain. I was calling the pharmacist. I was calling the doctor on call. And nobody was helping me. It was frustrating. So I, I opened my computer and I wrote an email to my doctor. And, and I, I told him, like, you, you said this medication was going to bring me life quality. And right now, my life quality is down to zero. I cannot continue my life like this. I, I have no quality of life. I don't even know who I am anymore with, with, you know, with these side effects that are taking over me. He called me right away. He, he was in Europe. He was in a medical convention. And, and we had probably about a 20-minute conversation. And he, you know, he heard all my concerns. He heard my pain and, 
and you know we had that conversation we had the very honest conversations should i stay on the medication and he's like margarita please stay on the medication one more month let's see where that goes if it doesn't work let's try to lower the dosage again and let's try to go back later on and, and increase it so we we had that honest conversation and i'm gonna tell you that that conversation helped me stay on it give me some kind of you know comfort and no not only knowing that you know i have his support but also some hope that we have more solutions if it if it if it didn't work out we we also had a, a plan b you know so i i think that when you're afraid of those side effects i think first you need to do some research two you need to discuss that research with your doctor because you need to be able to interpret what you read in google or what you read in a book or what you read in a magazine Third, I think you, you need to establish that relationship with, with your doctor and be able to discuss those things, those concerns, those questions with the doctor. And, and fourth, go on it if, you've, if you God tells you to do it. And if you struggle with it, keep that communication open with your doctor. Because I, I think at the end of the day, you have to be grateful that you have access to those medications. You have to be grateful that those medications might save your life. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, at least you tried. And, and you know you tried. And you're already a winner because you tried. So, I mean, that's how I always see it. I'm very open to, to treatments and things like that because of, of the experiences that I have gone through. I think that's so important as well to keep an open communication with your doctor and especially having a good doctor to begin with as well because, you know, when you're... I know there's so many people that I've spoken to on this podcast so far that um, they've had a doctor, but they've, the doctors let them down. And unfortunately they put so much trust in doctors because of the fact that doctors are supposed to help us. They are supposed to know everything. Basically one of the things that's been keep coming, that keeps coming up with these podcasts is the fact that people will realize that their doctor's not working for them. So they have to advocate for themselves and go get another doctor. So I'm so happy to hear that, you know, when people weren't listening to you and they weren't replying to you, you emailed your doctor and you had the opportunity to talk to your doctor and he, he was helping you stay on the medication and here you are now and you're healthy again, you know? But I think that's huge because for us with chronic disease, we need to advocate for ourselves because when something's not going right, we need help. And, and that's exactly what you did. I, I agree. And, I, and I, think, I think that's one of our biggest problems as, as chronic patients. That I feel that sometimes, and I'm sorry if I offend anyone with saying this, but sometimes I feel that we give the entire responsibility to the doctor for our well-being. Yes, and, exactly. And I think that once you're diagnosed with a chronic condition, you need to have your mindset that if you want to be okay, it's also your responsibility. And within that responsibility, it's not limited to you, you know, taking care of lab work, making sure that you took your medication at eight o'clock in the morning. That responsibility comes, you being an advocate of your own health, you taking care of your own body, learning what the body tells you, demanding the doctors, you know, like, I'm extremely demanding with my doctors. And you want to know why? Because I'm a responsible patient. I know what I have. I know what works. My second flare was a product of 
the doctor's lack of interest on my case. I was in the ER one, be one week before the hemorrhages came into my retinas because I realized that there was something in my body that was telling me there's something going on and the alarm went off and I went straight to the ER. And because the doctor didn't bother to do more than that, a week later, I was in the ER with a lupus flare. So I have learned that you need to speak up. If the doctor doesn't work for you, forget about it. Just go and look for somebody else. If the office that your doctors at, they don't, they don't care about it or they don't pay enough attention to your needs and, and, and other things, you need to speak up. In New York, I had the best cardiologist. He was great. Anything I needed, I could speak to the person. I could speak to his assistant. I know her at a personal level because I, I became very well acquainted with everybody in that office. So when I moved back to Miami, I'm trying to reach this doctor. I'm trying to reach this, this doctor's office, trying to get an appointment, you know, things like that. I was, I was referred by my rheumatologist and whatnot. And it was so difficult to actually speak to a person. So I, I was able to get the appointment. I go into, into the doctor, into the, into the room. I wait for the doctor to come in and whatnot. So the doctor finally comes in and he's also Colombian. So it's so cool because we're all like Colombians now. And, um, he comes in and says, like, oh, hi, Margarita, nice to meet you. I'm like, oh, hi, doctor, nice to meet you too. I, I need to speak to you and I'm going to be very blunt. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, yes, go ahead. So like, I tell him, like, I had the hardest time to get communication from your office. I had the hardest time to get this appointment. It's been extremely difficult and I'm a very responsible patient. I need to make sure that this is not going to happen in a relationship. Because if this is the way it's going to go between you and I, then please let me know now and I'm going to step out because this is not a place for me. And he said, you know what, Margarita, I'm very sorry. Here's my card. He gave me his, you know, his card with his email, with his phone number. And he said, anything that you need, feel free to reach out to me. And I have his number. I have his email address. I have the number for his assistant. And I have also earn my respect from him and that's how you have to do it you have to be on top of your game as a chronic patient you have to be able to speak up you have to be able to know what you have you have to know what your treatments are you have to know when was the last time when you went to the doctor what were your you know your 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 heart rate how was your blood pressure what did the doctor tell you Every time I go to see my doctor, I have a little notebook and I write the date. I write my, my, my vitals. I write the next time I'm supposed to see him as he sees me as, and questions start coming up. So I writing those questions. And the moment he opens the floor for me, I start asking those questions. And the next time I go to a different doctor, I can tell them that, I, I, I had gone to my rheumatologist a week before, and this is what she said, these were my vitals. So you need to stay on top of your game, almost like nothing. You need to train. You need to start finding tools because that's the only way you're going to stay healthy. And it's all on you. It's not the doctor. It's not your mother. It's not your husband. It's not your boyfriend. It's not your girlfriend. It's you. 
you have to create that responsibility for your own health. I definitely agree with that. And I think that it's so awesome to hear that you got his business card, like just stomping in there, like, this is how it's going to happen. <laughs> you but have to. You have oh, to, yes. 100%. Yeah. Well, and it's just frustrating because as soon as you don't do something like that, then, you know, your illness gets worse because you're not being validated by your own doctor. And that's what's so frustrating about this whole, like, I just, it's not because the doctor doesn't care or doesn't want you to get better. It's because of the fact that if you don't advocate for yourself and tell your doctor how you're doing, he just assumes, or they just assume that you're fine. And so because of the fact that they're so, so, so busy, like the population to doctor ratio is way too high. There are way too many patients per doctor. And so as soon as we don't advocate for ourselves and tell the doctor what we need, then they're just going to put us at the bottom of the pile and deal with the people that are advocate, advocating for themselves, right? Correct. And, and you also need to show the doctor that you know what you're talking about. Because totally. I, I have come across patients that they don't know. They don't know what they're taking. I'm like, oh, I think I take this medication, but I forget the name of it. I'm like, what? Uh, or yeah. like, they, they, don't, they don't even understand. Like, you don't know how many people I come across that, they have been diagnosed with lupus. I was like, really? Why? What happened? It's like, oh, I have arthritis. I'm like, what else? Like, no, it's I have arthritis. They told me I have lupus. I'm like, no, you cannot be diagnosed with lupus if you only have one symptom. There's, there's, you know, there's a certain list of symptoms that you need to meet before you officially die. It took me two years to be diagnosed with lupus, and it took me like six years to hear that, like officially diagnosed with um pulmonary hypertension so i i I think you know it's you really need to get to know what you have you need to understand it because the moment that you understand what you have you're going to realize when your body is not responding you learn to know your body as well yes 100 percent. and and you're so right there i mean like I, I was actually misdiagnosed for six years because I had like all the classic symptoms of Crohn's, but the one main symptom, I didn't have that. And so they just kept saying, oh, it's not Crohn's, it's not Crohn's or, you know, and it's just frustrating because for me, I had one doctor that I believed in for that six years and he sent me to all these different specialists. Like he actually sent me to three different psychiatrists because he thought I was bulimic because my infl inflammation oh, wow. and the pain was so bad. I know. Like I was a 20 year old girl getting sent to a psychiatrist because I'm allegedly bulimic. How bad is that? Oh, um, it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. But it's crazy because as soon as I went to a secondary doctor and she was amazing, she was, she looked at me and she's like, wow, like what's wrong with you? And she's like, I think you have Crohn's disease with it all within one session, like not oh, even a 15 minute session, deep. right? It's so frustrating and relieving. But so she sent me yeah. to the right doctor, but then the doctor was like, the GI doctor was like, well, you know, I'm not really sure if this is Crohn's because you don't have the classic blah, blah, blah. And so I ended up having to get uh, two tests done. And then they finally, within like, I think it was within six months after seeing that one doctor, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So it's just like, talk about advocating for yourself. Like had I seen a secondary doctor before that six years was up, huh, it would have been so much less painful. <laughs> I, I bet. And, and then once you, you have that doctor that kind of clicks with you, you know, you yeah. also start trusting him. Like when I had that, that, that six teams of doctors, I knew 
that the only one person I will trust the most would be my rheumatologist. She's been treating me since. Um, I have a very close relationship with her. And I think she's one of the reasons why I am this healthy. But anything she will tell me, I will do. Uh, yeah. Anytime I need to make a life decision, she is part of it. I remember when I, I was gonna, I was thinking about going to New York. I, I had to have that conversation with her like she was my mom. Like I literally, I sat down and I'm like, listen, I, I wanna move to, my, to New York. And I, I don't know what you think. She's like, oh, I don't recommend it. Like, you're going against medical advice. Margarita, please think about the cold and your rain nuts and, you know, all these things. And she was, like, more concerned probably than my mom. You, you know, so you funny. have to build that relationship with the doctor. Because when you have to make life choices, that you're going to have to trust that doctor to help you the, right life choices you know they're they're to make the right choice for your own good um and you know i'm I'm glad you're able to find that person that at least diagnose you properly because Mm. i cannot imagine going six years without the proper diagnosis it's it's gotta be awful and you shouldn't be going through that like a person with a chronic condition doesn't need to go through that no 100 percent. yeah And I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I don't want people in the future to suffer for six years being misdiagnosed and invalidated and sent to the wrong specialist and being told that you're bulimic and being told that you're wrong because we're not wrong. We're dealing with a disease and we know when our bodies are not okay. What do you think has been the best thing that's come from all of this for you? So for me today, I am, you know, people come, come, I'm very open about what I have. I tell people, you know, oh, no, I have lupus and pulmonary hypertension, all these things. And I say, I'm so sorry. I am not. Um, you know, being diagnosed as a chronic patient has brought so much perspective in life that every, every struggle, every difficulty has brought me to where I am today. And and I am in a good place. So I'm 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 very grateful for all of that, even though it has been extremely difficult. And it's it almost sounds like a cliche, but it, it's so true. Because at the end of the day, it, it has made me a stronger person. I I played volleyball 14 years, and for me, the hardest decision I ever had to make in my entire life was leaving the sport behind because I loved it. I loved it above everything. I sacrificed so much for the sake of volleyball. So when I stopped playing volleyball, I I didn't know what else to do. And I had always wanted to do art. And I know I I was like good at it. It was like kind of natural to me. So I started painting and, and then I started taking drawing classes and, and, you know, six months later, I get I get into an arts and design school, one of the highest accredited programs in the nation, and I get a scholarship, and then I'm able to do all these art courses and and you know study design and and get to know high profile people and and I met the, one of my best friends when I moved there and 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 then that person allowed so much into my life and they, so 
every single choice and every single situation that has happened since I was first diagnosed has been a product of that. And I live each day, I try to live it to the fullest. I let go of so many doubts and of so many fears. I, I'm, I'm, I, I try to try everything. I, I love food. So even like the most disgusting things that will come across in front of me, I, I try it because I, I know how fragile my life is. I know that tomorrow I might not wake up. Not because that's what life is all about. You, you, you are born, you live, and then you die. It's because I know I'm more, you know, fragile, I guess. And I know that to me, it's almost like, it's like an everyday fear, you know? Like, I know that tomorrow I might not get up. Like, it happened to me already twice. Like, one day I was playing volleyball for five hours, and the week later I was laying in a bed because I couldn't even breathe on my own. So I know I have to try everything. And, and lupus and, and pulmonary hypertension and rheumatoid arthritis and Raynaud's syndrome had allowed me to have a different perspective in life and to really enjoy and to be honest with myself and to go for what I want and to focus on me. Because I know that if I'm good, I, I will be good for others. I will be good for family. I will be good for my friends. And I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid to, to, you know, to move somewhere else. You know, like I even thought about moving to Australia. I don't want to die tomorrow not knowing why didn't I go to live in Australia? Or I didn't want to die tomorrow not knowing what it felt to live in New York City. I didn't want to die tomorrow not knowing what was to fly on, you know, on a glide when I went to Brazil and I did it. I, I want to be able to live life the way I want it, in my own terms. Even with the boundaries, even with the limitations that these chronic conditions have brought into my life, I don't care. They're not, they don't own my life. I own it. And I'm not going to let those things affect my decisions, affect what I want with my own life, affect what I live, affect what I do. I'm not going to let them like defeat me. I'm not going to let them define me. They have been a catalyst to make that change in life, to let go of everything that was a burden before, to just let it go and live the life I want without any fear, without any hesitation, and just, just being ambitious and just being, you know, willing to try everything so if i die tomorrow i die in peace i think that's huge living with no fear and also living like today is your last day because i think there's just so many people out there that you know they literally go to work they go to work so that they can pay bills and they go home so that they can just eat and then go to bed and they could do it all over again and they're just living a miserable life and so oh, yeah. And there's so many, so many people out there that are doing that. But the other thing that you said is you don't let your disease define you. And I think that there's a stigma behind people with chronic disease that, you know, we're different because of the fact that we have disease. Oh, we can't go to rock concerts and we can't do this. And oh, Becky can't go do that because of her Crohn's disease and this sort of thing. But it doesn't. 
we're people no. too. We're just regular people too. And we're going to live the life that we want to live. I actually did something very similar to you a couple of years ago. I realized in 2017 that my life in Ottawa really wasn't working for me. So I decided to pack up my stuff and move literally across the country to go ski. Uh, <laughs> so, <awesome>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it like, that's the moment when you realize, oh, this is, has been all worth it. Totally. A hundred percent. The most, like, it's the most cliche or whatever you want to call it. It's like, this is it. I, I can die happily. I know yeah. that all the I went through when I was in, in the hospital bed or all the struggle I went with my doctors or, or even like, oh, I got dumped or whatever. It brought me here and I'm, this is the happiest I have ever been. Totally. I can't even agree more. Like I, I kind of ended up in, I live in a little tiny town named Golden, BC. There's only about 3,600 people here, but like my life has never been better before. <laughs> it's awesome. And I'll tell you something. I was on a pulmonary hypertension um, uh, meeting on Thursday with uh, the pulmonary hypertension association here. And I know some of the patients were talking it's like, one of them said, oh, I struggle. I cannot go around the block. And then they asked me, Margarita, what do you do for exercise? I'm like, well, I can walk. And because I, I love to travel, love to travel. So when, when I travel, I try to stay locally. So I don't waste time taking transportation. And I walk everywhere I want to go. I try to stay like in downtown, whatever, so I can walk whatever I need to go and whatnot. And I was telling them, no, I can, I can walk, I can, I can walk. Last time I traveled, the most I walked in one day was like close to nine miles. And they're like, what? Oh my God, how could you do it? I was like, well, I, I, I did it. I mean, I'm not running, I'm not jogging. Uh, if I can go up five floors of stairs, uh, but sometimes I choose to take the elevator just to save the energy. So, I, I'm not going to let pulmonary hypertension define how much I can walk or if I should go up the steps for one floor or not. Like, if this is what I want, I'm, I'm just going to go for it. I mean, it's probably going to take me long, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to make it. I, I went to Colombia like five years ago, and there's a, a rock that's super high up. And you have to climb about 750 steps to get to the top. And I had never done it when I lived in Colombia and I always wanted to do it. So I went back, My the hypertension was at the worst. I couldn't breathe. I had a really hard time breathing when I was in Colombia because of the altitude. It took me almost an hour to go up to the top, but I went up to the top. You know, I, I will walk like for like two minutes, I will go up the steps, probably go about 15 steps, and then I will probably take like a five minute break, and then I will go up again like 50 more steps. But I did it, and I did it on my own, and I own up to it, and I'm proud of having done it. And I didn't let the hypertension say, no, you cannot do it. And, and another thing is when, when we talk about, I, these chronic conditions, we always say my lupus, we always say my arthritis, we always say my hypertension. They're not mine. They're dehypertension. They're de-lupus because they're not defining me. So also try to exercise that. When you talk about these conditions, talk about like decondition, not your condition, you know? Like it's not yours. Let it be on its own. Let it be the lupus, let it be the hypertension. 
and don't let those conditions define you. I think that's so, so important, you know, especially not saying like, oh, my disease or oh, my Crohn's and that sort of thing. And just saying something more like, this is something that happened to us. It's not something that defines us. It's not sure. it's something that, yeah, okay, we have to live with on a daily basis, but it doesn't mean that it's going to change our lives completely for the rest of our lives sort of thing. So. Correct. So if you can go back in time and tell your younger self something, what would it be? I, I'd say push harder. Um, you have to aim higher. <laughs> I, I never lose the desire to live. I think um, that everything that you're going through would allow you to get to where you want to be. Um, and whatever it is that gonna, you want to be is where you're going to be the best self you can be. Um, that I will tell because I was so afraid before. I was so, as healthy as I was, Becky, I wasn't myself. I came, I come from a different culture where we have so many, you know, beliefs and, and traditions and things like that. I come from a humble home and I never thought in a million years I could go to a school where I went to, that I could live in a place like New York City on my own terms, that I would be able to afford a place on my own, <laughs> that I would be able to travel the way I have trouble to be able to allow myself the moments of happiness that I have been able to live, I never thought I would be able to live them. Knowing the struggles I went through as a child, knowing the struggles that I have gone through as an adult, never will have thought in a million years that I would have the opportunities that I had. And not only because I allowed them to happen, because people helped me to allow them to happen, but that, that's what I will tell myself. I will, I will tell myself that. I will give myself some hope. I will give myself some love. Um, I will give myself some more compassion. And, and, and I, I think that's what I, I, I will, if I could go back in time, that's the, the one thing I would give to myself. I think that, you know, especially with dealing with disease and dealing with like trauma when we're younger and that sort of thing, it almost like the disease humbles us a little bit to know who we are inside and who we're supposed to be and, and the type of person we're supposed to be as well. Yeah, exactly. It grounds so like, us. Yeah, exactly. It grounds us. I definitely find my, like, I'm, I'm a bit more of a hippie nowadays because of my disease. <laughs> so <laughs> peace and love, man. <laughs> you got it, girl. <laughs> yeah. So what is what have you found has helped you the most up to now with your disease? Are you looking at doing anything more drastic or elaborate in the future at all? So, I mean, to, for me, it has been many things. I, one of the things has been education, obviously. Uh, understanding my condition and understanding the treatments. I mean, learning what lupus is all about, learning what hypertension is all about, learning what arthritis is all about learning what Raynaud's is all about. And, and, and once you learn, and then obviously the treatments, where these treatments were, huh? you know, so many people take medications and they don't even know what the medication is doing. 
Like I remember when I was, I was so for hypertension and for, for Raynaud syndrome, it's all about it's circulation, right? So one of the things that we take is basal dilators and everybody knows basal dilators by their brand name, not necessarily by what they really are and what they're meant for. So I used to take Viagra and I used to take, so uh, what's the name? Um, Cialis. And of course you tell someone who has no idea what really Viagra is, that you're taking Viagra and you're a woman and it can bring out like definitely like very interesting conversations. So That's um, really funny. <laughs> it, it's really funny. Like one time I went to a pharmacist and I remember I went to get my Viagra, you know, prescription and, and the pharmacies, the guy at the pharmacies calls me Margarita. I'm like, yes, man. Yes. The pharmacist would like to speak to him. I'm like, okay, is there something wrong? It's like, no, the pharmacist will speak to you, man. I'm like, okay. So the pharmacist comes over and he goes, um, yes, um, I quit. Is this medication for your mother? I was like, <laughs> no, it's, it's for me. It's like, you, you are, you are the patient. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, it, it, I am the patient. And he's like, um, excuse me, can you please, what, what is, what is it treating you for, for this? I'm like, oh, it's for, you know, it's for Raynaud's and it's pulmonary hypertension. And then I went like, oh, but don't worry about it. I haven't had any erections yet. And the guys are like cracking up. And, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, was a, it was about that. Like, you know, it's, it's not Viagra for whatever man. It's Viagra was helping me. My Reynolds was better. My, you know, the, the, the hypertension was better. So learning what these treatments are and learning about your condition helps and has helped me tremendously also building medical relationships like I, I mentioned before with the doctors you know having that close relationship with the doctor helps also becoming close to the nurses and and the assistants and that has always been part of the success I know the assistant of the my pulmonologist uh, I know the assistant of my rheumatologist I you know how people, you know, they they get a lab work and then I always ask, oh, do you get the results? Oh, no, I have to get an appointment with the doctor to get the results. I don't need to get an appointment to get the results. I actually get my lab work done after I see the doctor. And then when I get the lab work, I follow up with the doctor in two weeks. And then the doctor tells me what the results were without having to go into the office and get another doctor visit. Uh, if I need medication, I just send an email to her assistant and two hours later, I get an email response saying your medication has been called in, you should be getting a call from the pharmacist and things like that. So building those relationships have definitely helped me. Also, proving my responsibility and knowledge about the body and the treatment has been successful. Because I show the doctors that I know what I'm talking about. I show my doctors that I am a responsible patient. I show my doctors the dedication I have for my treatment. I show the doctors that I can do it. So I almost, I almost have, I think that has helped me earn their respect, although I shouldn't be earning it but because they're my doctors and they need to take care of me. But I think that has also allowed me to earn some respect. And 
And that had escalated to almost have like, also like a personal relationship with my doctors. I love my doctors. I like friends to me. Um, also being very open about the condition. Uh, it has allowed me to be aware of my limitations without me being bounded to them. And that it also applies to both the professional and personal environments. I, I am very open about what I have, not because I'm trying to earn empathy from other people or sympathy, but because I, it has happened to me that when I open up, I have been able to help someone else. I have come across people who have a niece that has been diagnosed with lupus and is going under like very chronic depression because she doesn't know how to deal with it. Or I know someone who has really bad arthritis and they don't know how to deal with it. Or I know someone who struggled with a diagnosis and they're looking for a rheumatologist. And then I have mine who's the most amazing person in the whole world. So I have been able to help other people. And so that's why I'm very open about it. And it also has allowed me to create some consciousness. So yes, I cannot climb the Everest because of the pulmonary hypertension, but I can climb 752 steps. So for me, that's a big win. Um, also, staying positive rather than just negative. Um, yes, I, I, I mentioned to you I supply in volleyball, but I got into art and I, I, you know, I couldn't, I came, I couldn't play volleyball. So, you know, I applied to this high profile art and design school and, and, you know, I went there and I received a scholarship and, and from, from then on, I have to, I, my jobs, I have great jobs. I have never struggled finding a job, never. And I have been able to be a full-time employee at all my jobs. And in design, design, I work in interior design, and in design is a very demanding profession. You never work 40 hours. Usually you work overtime. There's never a week where I work 40 or below 40 hours. I mean, sometimes I have stay in my office until three o'clock in the morning doing work. But, you know, it, I've done it. Um, and I have been able to manage the limitations and I have been able to find different ways to live what I want to live. Um, also, psychological treatment. Um, with lupus, you know, when I was diagnosed with lupus and I was in the emergency room, one of the doctors told me, you need to find a psychologist because the life that you have until today, it's no longer. And now your life is going to be 180 degrees differently. And she was right. So the first thing I, I remember I was at college and I reached out to my, to my psychologist professor and she actually started treating me. And, and I said, all these traumas when I was a child, I, I, my dad is, it's an alcoholic and he, he abused my mom domestically and, and saying to me, he, and, and I wasn't able to, to cope with that until I was an adult. And within coping with that trauma, I also think has helped me heal the lupus. I, I have always 
gone through a psychologist. I have done many treatments. I, I have been in antidepressants. I have been in anxiety pills. I have been off medication for almost four years. I, I don't see a therapist right now because I haven't found one that I, I am okay with it. So far, I, I have been able to get out of my depression on my own through church. But I think if you are depressed, if you are anxious, go through a therapist. It's, it doesn't mean that you're crazy, but it, it, at least a person is going to help you deal with whatever you're going through. Sometimes it's not even a trauma. Sometimes it's just stress. And they might be able to help you stress management. And stress causes so much damage into a person that, you know, that has a chronic condition. Stress triggers everything. When I had that first lupus flare, I was playing volleyball five and a half hours. I was a full-time architecture student and I was a part-time job. My body was under so much stress. It couldn't take it. If I could have had better stress management, probably I could have avoided something. So I, I think reaching out for that therapist, it will also help. And then, I don't know, other support groups, family and friends. The last thing that helped me understand and it helped me to get people to understand what lupus was about. And I don't know if you have ever heard of the spoon theory, but the spoon theory is a story from... I forgot her name, but it's she also struggled having her friends understand what she had. And so one time my friend asked her what she was going through because she was going through a lot of pain and the friend wouldn't understand what she was going through. So she, she asked her friend, like, okay, go. They were like in the school cafeteria and she asked her friend to go and grab all the spoons. So her friend went, grabbed all the spoons, brought it onto the table. And she said, okay, now I want you to tell me what you go through the day. I said, oh, yeah, I go to work. I'm like, no, no, no. Literally, I want you to start from the first time you wake up in the morning. What is it that you do? It's like, oh, okay, first I, I, I go to shower. Like, no, no, before you shower, you have to what? Wake up, right? Yeah. So I wake up and say, like, okay, fine. Give me one spoon. And then after you wake up, oh, I go to the bathroom. Okay, give me another spoon. And then I get in the shower. Okay, give me another spoon. And then when you get out of the shower, what do you do? You have to get dressed. Give me another spoon. So every time you do something, you have to give her a spoon. And by midday, she was running out of spoons. So she had to start being selective on how to use those spoons. And that's when it clicked for me. And I shared that with people who sometimes don't understand what I'm going through. So that, that was another thing that, that helped me understand the conditions and it has helped me to tell others how to understand what I have, I have to go through in a day. Yeah, I've heard of that spoon analogy before. Actually, one of our other podcasters, Shauna, told us about that earlier, but it's definitely, it opens your eyes. It's, it's a visual thing that helps you see how, how disease all works and what you go through on a daily basis. I think that's huge. Yes. Um, one of the, the limitations that I have with, with the lupus is that I lack of energy. And I live mm -hmm. in Miami, guys. So it's, I used to love going to the beach. So I know that if I want to go to the beach, I cannot go on a Sunday. Because the day after I go to the beach, it's like I went to the gym and I work out for like five hours. My body is dead. Like 
everything is like I cannot even lift my fingers because the sun drains my energy. So I I I realize that I cannot go out on the beach on Sunday. So I go to the beach on Saturday just to make up for that because I need to also be very mindful of how I invest my energy and my time for that matter. That's crazy. Could you give our listeners a little bit more advice for their struggles? I, I mentioned to you guys, you know, the book, having a little notebook every time you go to a doctor, write things down. You know, it, w- it would definitely help you and, and you know, create that healthy relationship with the doctor and, and have smart conversations about it. It's hard. Find people who, who will respect you who will be empathetic of your feelings, people who, cares, who care about you. You have, to, you have to be selective of the people around you because if you have good people around you, they're going to help you stay healthy. They're going to help you stay positive. They're going to help you pull through the difficult days. Build that support around you is very, very important. So just... Just be very conscious of the people that you let in your lives. Understand that as difficult as these conditions are and as horrible the impact in our bodies and in our minds they are, we can choose what the outcome of that is. Try to be mindful of that, but don't let that define who you are. And and find other ways to make up for the things that you have lost or for the things that you can do because of of what you have find ways out be open about them i feel that these things happen to us for a reason and and i i'm a firm believer that these happen to us because we need to be a testament of that and it's it's almost like we have we need to share these things because we need to be able by our own experience help people around us it's 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 our duty to do it it's our duty to to share what we have so if we come across someone who's lost who doesn't have hope or who doesn't know how to get diagnosed or who cannot find a doctor or who's going through a treatment that's not working and then we know what has worked for us and we share that with them that might help them you know Becky if you have had someone earlier than six years have come across and had explained things about Crohn's or had had a doctor that had worked for them or whatnot maybe you could have been saved earlier so I think you guys have to be open about it be open about your condition not because you want people to have pity on you but because you might be able to impact someone's life. You might be their, their help. You might be their way out. You might be their solution to, you know, to their own struggles. You have to become, you know, a, a witness of, of, of life and, and you have to be that, that person. So be open, be open about the condition. Help other people, make that a purpose in your life. Make it work for something positive. Not for something that is defining you to be miserable or be in pain forever and, and whatnot. 
I'm not, I'm not trying to take away from the pain because I also think that acknowledging your pain and, and allowing it to process is important because pain is there for some reason. And I, and I am a big believer that you need to be able to process your own pain. But at the same time, try to make it a positive experience. And, and I think it's our duty to do it. It's our duty to us to speak up and be our own advocates and advocate for other people with our conditions. I think that's huge in regards to, you know, you, you have to let yourself feel all the emotions, like, you know, good days, bad days. And I, I kind of say the 80-20 rule. If 80% of the time you're good, you have po- you're, you're positive, you're trying to live each day as best you can. And then that 20% of the time you're allowed to feel angry, sad, annoyed, frustrated, because if you don't feel those emotions, you push them down and you repress those emotions. And then what happens totally. is it makes you, your, your disease worse. You get worse because Correct. of it. Like, you know, because you have a disease, Correct. it sucks. It does suck. There are going to be days like yes. yesterday was a really bad day for me, but yes. you know, you just sit in your room, you talk to a friend and you just cry. You let it out. You let out the anger, you let Correct. out the frustration, because if you don't, it'll just get worse. My, my best friend once told me, she's like, Margarita, you know, you know when people tell you everything is going to be okay when you're feeling like really, really bad? You know what? No. Whatever. It's not okay right now. It's hell for you. You're in pain. You're sad. You're depressed. You're stressed. Feel it. Because you need to be able to process that pain. And the moment you process that pain you'll be able to figure out what the pain is telling you and you'll be able to move on. But by you suppressing it, believe me, it's not going to do anything. So you need to be able to feel that pain. And we sometimes we forget. People don't like crying. I feel crying is the most, it's probably one of the best things in the world. I was depressed for like two years and I couldn't cry. So cry. You need to cry. Cry. Cry is going to make you feel lighter. And it's going to help you sleep because nothing better than a good cry to go to sleep. So I think it's important to process those feelings as well. I totally agree with you. I know I was really depressed in my early, like late teens, early twenties, and I'm the same way I couldn't cry. And so now, but it's funny because now I'm an incredibly emotional person and like, I'll cry at a commercial on TV. It's so funny. (laughs) It's so bad. (laughs) Like you turn on something that has to do with animals or babies and I just start crying. It's hilarious. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I wish, I wish I could do that. It's hard for me to cry. Mm -hmm. Extremely hard. But it was, it took me a long time for sure to get, and, and, you know, your whole counseling point, you're right. Like I, I went through a lot of counseling, a lot of therapy after all this stuff happened. And, you know, had I not done that, I don't think I would be the same person I am today. Like I'm a very emotional person now, but you know, the counseling it doesn't define who you are. It's not that you're problematic or you're broken or anything like that. It's just there to help you understand what you're going through, who you are, and how to get you out the other side to be happy and to be a better person as a whole. And it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's trying to get yourself to being better so that you can live happy. You can be okay. Right. Right. But before we go, I wanted to, I want to mention something. One of the, the first thing, one of the second thing that I did when I, I saw the new pulmonologist, I told him that my goal was to skydive 
And about six months ago, he gave me the okay to skydive. Oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> You'll have to put it like, get a video of that and show it to me because <laughs> I, I'm so afraid of heights. I don't even think I could do that on a good day. <laughs> I, I went to Brazil for the world cup back in like I, 2000 and something. And mm -hmm. we went gliding and it was what? amazing. It was that's amazing. Crazy. I was able to glide, but I can I couldn't do skydive because I I could um, because of the hypertension in my lungs. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't, you know, there was a chance that I wouldn't get oxygen into my brain and I could oh pass God. out. I'm like, I'm not gonna pass out while I'm flying. It defeats the purpose yeah. of feeling. But now the doctor gave me the okay. So it's it's uh, awesome. it's on my it's it's on my mind. It's on my brain to skydive at some point, sometime when I can. That's so exciting on your bucket list. That's great. Well, thank you yes. so much for your time and your advice, Margarita. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, oh, okay. Uh, well, feel free to email me, I guess. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is M-A-R-M-A-R-A-N-G-O. And I'm very active on Instagram because I love photography. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm also a photographer in life. Um, so feel free to reach out through Instagram. And if, if you are on Instagram, send me an IM. And if you wish some kind of support, if you want like further advice, or if you want a new friend and want that friend to hear you, why not? If you send me an IM, then I can give you my personal email and we can start contacting it. Or I can even give you my personal phone number. Does that work? Perfect. Sounds awesome. We will uh, post your contact information on the podcast as well. So hopefully we'll get Perfect. a few followers on Instagram and that sort of thing. So I, I know, I know it's complicated. It's double M-A-R just so everybody knows it's more <laughs> mango. Okay. It's M-A-R-M-R-A-N-G-O. Awesome. We'll put a link to your Instagram as well there. Yeah. Perfect. No problem. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. All right, thank ladies and gentlemen, our lovely listeners, that's all for this episode and we will catch you on the rebound.